everybody, this is Mike Van Meter. Welcome to the Recovery is Possible podcast. And I want to thank you for joining me. And you can reach us at our Facebook site, which is also called Recovery is Possible, or our website, which is vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com. And this episode is sponsored by FHE Health, a substance abuse and mental health treatment center specializing in treatment for first responders' needs, including PTSD, anxiety, and substance use. So take the first steps to a better life today by visiting fhehealth.com. Hey, folks. I have a very special guest, a good friend of mine, Michael Segru, and he was on this podcast uh, earlier this year, or late last year, I should say, and we had talked about trauma, and we had talked about his experiences, and those of you that remember the podcast might remember that Mike was on the verge of releasing a book, and guess what? He has released the book, and it's called Relentless Courage, uh, Winning the Battle Against Frontline Trauma. And uh, it was written by Michael with uh, Shauna Springer, who's a PhD. And you know what? I just noticed on this, too, that it w- it's forwarded by Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. And those of you that uh, work in law enforcement or in the military, uh, there's a good chance that you've probably heard Lieutenant Colonel Grossman. A phenomenal speaker, very dynamic. Uh, I've met him uh really just a a phenomenal individual, and I'd like to hear all about that, and I know you guys will as well. So with that, Mike, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to be back. Well, I bet you're really busy with the release of this book. Oh, it's been crazy. I mean, the book literally just released two and a half days ago, and it's already going up the charts. We're getting a lot of great feedback on this, and the energy behind it is just phenomenal. Man, that's uh, I did order the book. I haven't gotten it yet, but it should be here tomorrow, and I look forward to uh, reading it. And th- for those of you that don't know, Michael and I both are going to be guest speakers at a FBI National Academy uh, Associates regional conference, uh, or state conference, I should say. We're both speakers. I think there's going to be four total speakers. And I'm going to get to meet you in person, and that's going to be phenomenal. And if I get the book, Mike, here's what I'm telling you. If I get this book tomorrow... I will have read it, and I'm going to have a million questions for you by the time we get there into Alabama. So be ready for all those questions. Oh, phenomenal. I can't wait. And, and bring it with you because I'm going to sign it. So Absolutely. That happens. Absolutely. Well, that's exciting. I am so happy for you. I, I mean, this is phenomenal. I've, I've seen you all over Facebook. I've seen you on LinkedIn. Uh, I've seen you on just a lot of different sites. So it seems like you're everywhere these days. So tell us about, you know, what are you doing? And, and of course, we're going to talk about the book. What inspired you to write the book? What can the readers expect to learn? You know, like, why would somebody buy this book? Why would it be important to them? So go ahead and tell us a little bit about what's going on with you these days. And and why? why? Why did you write the book? What prompted you to, to do that? So, you know, I'll be honest with you. I never envisioned anything like this happening. And there's been a lot of things that have gone into this. But we'll have to go back in time. And basically, my story as far as it relates to this and why this happened is I was involved in a fatal police shooting when I was a brand new police sergeant. And that incident forever changed my life. It changed my path. And it led to a lot of self-destruction. It led to my life just literally spiraling downward to where I almost lost everything, including my own life. And so after years of suffering, I finally got the strength and courage to ask for help. And once I did that, that's where I started my year's recovery from post-traumatic stress injury. And so now I'm on the other side of that journey and I'm living a whole new life. I mean a life that I never imagined. And so I am living proof that you can recover from post-traumatic stress injury. And so this book came about because of that. And it literally, the format of the book is there's 15 chapters. Every chapter is broken into two sections. And it goes all the way back to my childhood till now, to present day. And the first part of every chapter is my story told in my voice. And the second part of every chapter is where Dr. Shauna Springer, who is a renowned psychologist and author, she's been working with combat veterans and first responders most of her career. She actually breaks it down and explains everything. She explains the toll of the trauma that we see as first responders. And she talks about administrative betrayal. And then we talk about 
you know, the effects on our families, our loved ones, and even those on the streets that we encounter. And ultimately, we talk about what works as far as preventing getting to the place where I got, or if you are in the place to where I got, to where you're ready just to give give up on life, we show how to come out of that. And so we truly believe that this book is going to absolutely save countless lives. You know, it's interesting that you say that, Michael. And, and I know that this book is geared towards people who are working as first responders, maybe military too. But I don't want to forget, and I know that you certainly don't forget, that this has application for everybody out there. Everybody out there. So if you're not a first responder or not military, don't think that this book is not for you because it is. You know, and Michael, I was in a, uh, I, w- I went to a religious retreat this this last weekend. Very, very powerful experience. And it was really nice to do that post-COVID because we've we've all been cut off from, you know, everybody and human relationships. And this was for the general public. It wasn't, it wasn't first responders. It was just the, the public. And you talked about self-harm PTSD, um, and people just getting to the point where they think, you know, going on may not be worth it. And I was, I shouldn't say shocked. I mean, you, you can't be in law enforcement as long as you and I both have been and be shocked by this. But um, let's just say there were a lot of people that were at this, this uh, retreat that I was at where suicide played a part, the potential for suicide and PTSD from you know different different ways, whether it was um, being abused physically, emotionally by a loved one, a parent, sexual abuse that seemed to be very very common, and you know people were really just struggling for you know like how do I deal with this? How do I process this? How do I get out of this? How do I uh, does life get any better? Is there any hope? Um, so this this book really has applications for everybody, doesn't it? It absolutely does. And, you know, the fact is that we're all human and that's what this book is about. You know, we both myself and Dr. Springer, we both share very deep personal experiences. And these experiences are ones that everybody in some form can relate to. And, and the fact is, you know, the culture of first responders and military members really prevents us from asking for help. But in reality, like you said, You know, there are so many people just suffering in silence. And, you know, this book, the goal is to save lives. But what I also think it's going to do is I think it's going to let the general public see first responders and military members in a whole new light. Mm -hmm. They're going to see the human side behind the badge and behind the uniform. And I, I, I truly think that this book can help improve relations between, especially between law enforcement in the general public. I mm-hmm. truly do. And that's so that's so necessary because, uh, you know, Mike, you and I have talked before about how I do work uh, with post-critical incident seminars. And uh, I work out in Ohio. It's called Ohio Assist. It's a PCIS. And for those that don't know, it's a program that's put together where the state will identify officers and first responders that have been involved in traumatic incidents and they bring them in and it's uh, three and a half days of uh, talking about wellness. How do you take care of yourself mentally, physically, uh, spiritually? And it's an opportunity to learn about addictions, pitfalls of addictions. That's why I go out there. I'm the addictions guy. And they have an opportunity to meet with a, uh, a uh, psychologist and do some EMDR and some other work if they want to do that. They also get massages. They get you know all kinds of uh, lectures and and information that they can use to help themselves. What his in, what was interesting to me though is the incident that brought them there. By the end of the three days, isn't really what they end up needing to work on. A lot of times, for the first responders, it's the feeling that they were mistreated or mishandled by their agency post-incident. Not necessarily the incident themselves, itself, but how they were treated by the agency after the incident. And that seems to be as or if not more traumatic than the actual incident itself. Have you seen that quite a bit? Not only have I seen it, I've experienced it personally. And I think you're absolutely spot on because... You know, the facts are is the trauma, it affects us. There's no doubt about that. We're exposed to hundreds and hundreds of traumatic incidents. 
But what, from what I've seen from my own experience and talking to countless first responders and military members is when you have a supportive agency or you have people that you can go to and you can confide in that you trust, that makes a critical difference. And if you have that support, if you truly have it, you can get past these hurdles. You can go through an entire career and make it out on the other side. But what often happens, like you said, is the feeling of betrayal or feeling of abandonment. And I'll actually take that even a step further. And a lot of that originally goes back to childhood trauma. Mm-hmm. You know, many, many first responders, military members, and of course the general public, oftentimes we have some form of childhood trauma. It could be very, what I would consider on the minor side of the scale, which is just an emotionally distant parent, or maybe not having parents that are there because they're always working, or somebody that's an alcoholic or an addict, or it could be on the other end of this spectrum, and we're talking about physical abuse, sexual abuse, you know, emotional abuse. And the fact is that we don't choose this career by accident. It actually chooses us because at a very young age, we learn to overcome adversity. We learn to be resilient and caretakers. And it actually, it makes us very good at what we do. But here's the key. You know, we get past all of that. And eventually we find these new careers in first responders like dispatchers, firefighters, police officers, paramedics, or the military. And we find our new family, right? So we embrace this new family. We believe they have our back to the fullest. And they do, and they're supporting us, and they're there for us. But all it takes is that one incident when you need them most, and they're not there. And it brings all that those feelings all the way back from childhood, and it just makes it much, much worse. So it's it's literally trauma on top of trauma is what it is. Mm-hmm. And the, in law enforcement, there's always this myth, and I think it's the shattering of the myth, too, that you come into law enforcement – and you're told that it's a brotherhood, a sisterhood, that the thin blue line, that we'll, we've got your back, we protect one another. And I think it's shocking to officers when something happens and you find, well, wait a minute, you actually don't have my back. In fact, you're uh, part of the problem. You're not necessarily part of the solution. And it's a real shame to see when people come to that that realization. And then, like you said, it, it's a double trauma. And I know the work that I've done, the anger, the anger to a person has always been, I didn't like how I was treated by the agency. And so if, if you are an executive out there in a police agency, you know, do, do a soul search right now and ask yourself, you know, how much, how well do I support the people in my agency that are going through trauma? And, you know, particularly these days when we have a public that's not even supportive of police. And that's maybe even a third trauma that's thrown out there. I mean, we all understand that this is a dangerous job, that that we're going to see things that most people should never see. I mean, after all, if you're not working in law enforcement, I want to put this in perspective for you. What you see as a police officer on a daily basis, if the average person witnessed that once in their lifetime, that that would be a traumatic experience and many people would have to go through some sort of counseling or therapy to deal with that one issue if they saw it one time. We, on the other hand, are seeing that every day uh, for 20, 25, 30 years, depending on how long your career is. And police executives need to understand that and provide the resources that the members and their agencies need to get through what is arguably the most toxic profession there is on earth. And we're, we're just not well, doing a you know, good job. You know, one thing I got to tell you, and I haven't ever shared this before in any interview, and I'm going to keep it in a general uh, explanation when I, when I tell you this. So when we were done with our manuscript for this new book, I reached out to several military and law enforcement leaders across the country. And for the most part, I would say 99.9% of them were extremely supportive Um, you know, agreed to read the manuscript and after doing so provided feedback and actual official endorsements that we used for the inside of the book and the back cover, including Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman, who, man, that guy is a legend and I I respect him so much. And we'll talk about that in a little little bit. We'll talk about how that happened. Mm -hmm. But there there was a chief that I approached 
And again, I'm not going to mention the agency or the area, but this chief was an active police chief here in the United States. That's all I'll say. And I, I had a phone conversation with this person and I, I called them up and asked them if they'd be willing to review the manuscript. And I kind of gave them a brief summary of what it's about. And I talked about post-traumatic stress injury and how it was about my story and the story of recovery. And, and here's what he told me. He's like, look, he's like, Mike, I got to be honest with you. And I got to let you know this right away. He's like, he said, basically, I think a lot of people are faking this. He said, you know, I, I'm dealing with this right now in my own agency. And I think these people are faking it. And he's, he said, he was honest with me. He says, look, I don't know if I'm the best person to actually read this book. And I said, no, chief, this, I want you to read this book because I'm hoping you're going to read it and maybe it will give you some insights. Maybe it will change your perception. And unfortunately I have to be honest with you, this chief did read it, but never gave me any feedback whatsoever. He actually literally just didn't respond. Wow. And, and that, that is the harsh reality of what we're talking about here. And when I've traveled across the country and I've spoken to, you know, executives, leaders, but when I've spoken to the line level officers, countless times I've had people line up to talk to me after the presentation. And I can't tell you how many officers have told me that when they asked for help, they were literally outcast. I mean, they're outcast by their peers and they're also put out on an island by their supervisors. And, and as much as I hate to say it, that is a reality that is going on today right now in this country. Mm -hmm. And that's why we have to change this culture. We need our police leaders and our executives to set the example. And I've met some great police executives that are doing this. One of them is Chief John Carley. I mean, this man, he just retired from Vacaville PD here in Northern California, and he's out there talking about this and speaking about it. And he is a true leader that cares about his people. And, and these executives need to be vulnerable. They need to be open. They need to not worry about the chiefly image and talk to their officers and their managers and, and just be open about how the jobs affected them, you know, set the example and normalize this conversation. Because the fact is everything I'm talking about is normal. I mean, every, our response to this trauma, it's normal. It's normal behavior. What's not normal is pretending it doesn't exist and not talking about it. Yeah, I don't know how you can go around police departments today, particularly with what's happened over the last couple of years and the browbeating that law enforcement has been taken and think that there's not trauma. There is. I, even for the officers that aren't suffering from trauma from the job per se, uh, I, I don't know where this particular chief has been, but the, the morale is the lowest I've ever seen it nationally. And, and the country is paying a price as a result. I mean, here in Washington, D.C., you know, I'm in the D.C. area, our homicide rate went up 400% this last year. Let that sink in for a minute. 400% just in the, in the last year. And a lot of that is because of the fact that there's demoralization of the police and, and really if you think about it, just trauma from how they're being treated by the public. And we have to do better than that. The nation needs our police. We, uh, there, this is a win-win situation. You know, we help officers, we help them get through their career. And consequently, if they're healthier, mentally, physically, uh, spiritually on the job, the community benefits. So there's a vested interest for all of us to have officers that are emotionally, physically, and spiritually well when they're out on the street. I mean, wouldn't you agree with that? Absolutely. And there's actually studies that show that if officers are both physically and mentally healthy, they are much less likely to use improper force on the street. I mean, it's a fact. And, mm -hmm. you know, when you talk about these officers that are, are stressed out, you know, their jar, what I call their jar is overflowing from just the trauma and the lack of sleep and the understaffing and, being attacked at all sides, you know, sometimes things happen on the street as a result of that. But if we take a step back and we make mental health and physical health a priority for our first responders, that's going to benefit not only them, but like you said, it's going to benefit the people we're contacting on the street. You know, it's going to, it's going to affect the community in a positive way. Mm -hmm. But when our officers are understaffed, you know, they're not sleeping and they're overstressed, that is going to have negative effects. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I saw 
uh, this is after the whole Minneapolis incident with George Floyd. Of course, you know, law enforcement is the only profession where everybody seems to have an opinion on it. Now, very few people have actually done the job, but everybody seems to have an opinion on how uh, how how this should be done. And I was watching, and I won't mention the name because I actually have great respect for the guy, but it, it's not his fault. But it just it just goes to show you that. Uh, you know, I don't think people understand the job. Joe Rogan was in, uh, interviewing a particular individual, a uh, former Navy SEAL, and th- he was talking about policing in America. Now, I don't know why you would be talking to someone, you know, just, you know, I, I was a Navy guy, you know that, so I have great respect for the Navy SEALs, but that's not being a police officer. And this guy was asked, you know, how do you think that we could, fi- how could we fix this problem? And the response from this individual was, well, hey, you know, in the Navy SEALs, you know, we train up for, you know, six, eight months, and then we go on a deployment, and we go on a deployment, and then we come back, and we do lessons learned, and what went, went, what went right, what went wrong, and then we retrain, and we may do that up to a year, and then we go back out on deployment. And he said, I think that's what we need to do with police. You know, we what we need to do is have these training cycles where officers are pulled off the street for months, like several months, and be in training periods, and then put them back out on the street. And I just thought, you know, if this was uh, Alice in Wonderland, or if this was, you know, if this was Disney World, that would work. But that's not reality. You can't. What department out there could take groups of officers off the street for several months, you know, and do this every year to do to do training and to get well and to take it? Because his thing too was that would allow officers time to get back and work out, get a, a sleep cycle going, and and work on their their diet and all the other things that would help them. And I'm just I just thought. These people don't understand. That's not reality. I mean, you have to have people out on patrol. So that doesn't isn't going to work. But really, Mike. But what you, in your book, when you're talking about trauma and preventing this, and but what are some of the things that you could do if you're out on the street now? You're a patrol officer. What what can you do? We do go into great detail in the book about this, and I'll just kind of give some brief overviews on it, but. You know, it's, it's actually, it is pretty simple, the solution in my opinion, but it takes constant work and it, it takes doing this on a regular basis. And so, you know, you really have to take it all the way back to the police academy and you have to start there and you have to bring people in like you and I who have gone through the job and we've seen all this trauma and we've had all these negative effects on our life, you know, whether it's suicide ideation or if it's alcohol abuse or addictions or extramarital affairs or divorces and all these things. And we need to plant the seed with our trainees right then and there, you know, just plant the seed because they're so gung ho and they're just worried about shooting guns and driving cars and, you know, learning the law. But if we plant that seed and we take that a step further and in our field training program, again, we start to normalize this. So when you're in training as a police officer, after every single call or every single contact that you have, after that, you take time with your training officer and you debrief it. And so we talk about, you know, arrest and control techniques if necessary. We talk about how we're going to document this. We talk about the laws that pertain. We talk about officer safety. We may talk about evidence collection and handling. But why don't we take just a couple minutes to talk about the human side of, of that call or that incident if it's necessary, if it applies? You know, an example would be like, Let's say it's a suicide or maybe it's a horrendous car crash where there's somebody seriously injured or somebody died or even just a natural death call, you know, a suicide attempt, a child abuse, a child drowning. I mean, all these calls we go to on a regular basis. So why don't we in the training program have the field training officers start that conversation, be vulnerable, share how they felt about it and the impact of it. And again, this doesn't have to be a big deal, but we're just normalizing this conversation right and then you take that another step further and you do that during annual training or maybe like when i was a patrol sergeant we had line up every single day and that was usually 30 minutes before we hit the streets and we would just talk about administrative stuff or we talk about calls that happened while we were off but why don't we again if let's say there was a horrific call that we all went to the day before in that lineup let's forget about the admin stuff Let's have that sergeant open up the conversation, be vulnerable, talk about the impact to them, and then start that conversation. 
And if you look at what I'm saying here is that there's leadership at every level. And we need our leaders at every level to initiate this, to set the example, to show how it's done, and to normalize this. And if we do that, that is how this entire culture, this stigma of asking for help is going to change. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And in in the chapters in your book, you said there's 15 chapters, correct? Correct. Uh, walk us through a little bit about what, what are the, some of the topics of those chapters? Well, uh, like we talked about, childhood trauma is involved, uh, workplace trauma, moral injury, administrative betrayal. Um, you know, you name it. it. It literally involves every aspect that you can think of on the job. And, and what I did mention is there's also a chapter dedicated to my best friend who is a Vietnam veteran. Mm. And so there's a specific chapter where he talks about his experience in Vietnam. And then he also talks about his transition back home. And he later became a reserve officer for 35 years with my department. And so he also gives his insights on how, you know, being in the war affected him and then how that further affected him once he went into law enforcement. And Doc Springer, you know, not only does she give her insights and explanations, but she also shares some very deep, personal experiences inside the book as well. Oh, wow. I'm looking forward to that. And, you know, it really seems like if a lot of these issues, and all of us have issues that we bring to the table, there's a lot of things that if it was addressed early on may prevent all kinds of problems down the road. When we look at some of the, like Derek Chauvin and the George Floyd incident, you know, I know the the public really turned that into a racial issue when, in fact, there's really no evidence that, that it was there. It was just a, an officer that was out of control, had problems, and he'd had a long history of problems. And it, I, I don't see any evidence that that was ever dealt with, and of course that resulted in, in what we all know happened. Why... Why is it that there's so much reluctance in agencies to identify problems? You know, you mentioned you're a patrol sergeant. And I think that, uh, you know, when you're in a leadership position and you're seeing this in other people, and you don't even have to be in leadership. You could, maybe this is somebody that you're working with, and you start to see disciplinary problem after disciplinary problem, maybe absences, tardiness, uh substandard work performance, which is not normal for that particular individual. Why are we so reluctant to step in and pull people aside and address those issues? Why, why is that? Well, we eat our own. You know, the, the honest truth is that we have no problem disciplining our people and writing them up or doing investigations. But, you know, let me just give you a perfect example. This didn't happen to me, but I see this all the time where let's say a police officer gets a DUI off duty, mm-hmm. right? And so, and that is a problem. It's a big problem. It's a crime. And they're going to have to face the consequences of that through the district attorney and eventually the courts. But what we should be looking at an incident like that is why did this happen? You know, is there a substance abuse problem? Is there an alcohol problem? You know, why is that? Why didn't, you know, let's get them the help that they need. I mean, they're still going to have to deal with this other stuff, but we're just worried about the punishment side, but we need to, like you said, is recognize these signs before it gets to that level of the DUI or, you know, something bad happening at their house or on the job. And actually in this book, and when I speak, I talk about a very specific incident that happened to me. And and I talk about it because the pivotal point where, Hey, I messed up because I should have asked for help. But in this moment that I talk about and go into detail, my administration, they had the warning signs. And instead of trying to get me the help, they came down on me. And that had an absolute worse effect. That caused me to close down, to decide that I wasn't ever going to show emotion. I wasn't going to show weakness. And that really caused me to nosedive. Mm-hmm. And so, like, like you said, you can usually go back to incidents and, and kind of trace it back if you really think about it, you know, but we have to know our people for that to happen. I mean, really know our people, you know, when we ask them how they're doing, we don't just take that at face value. We, we look at how they're responding at us with their body language, their facial expressions, the tone of their voice. 
And we have to ask ourselves, do we believe that? Are they, are they really okay? Are they doing good? Or do we need to take them aside and just have a heart-to-heart conversation because we're concerned about them? Do you and cover that in the book, by that. the way? Do you cover uh, like maybe the signs and symptoms of recognizing in others the, the trauma? Or, or And if not, how just sitting here right now, would you say to people, if you were, if you were talking to a group of supervisors, what would you tell them to look for? We do talk about that. And, you know, there's so many signs to look for. But the most obvious is just to look if somebody is doing something that's not normal, they're acting out of turn. You know, like an example is let's say you have an officer who's always to work early, always to line up on time. But all of a sudden, they're starting to be late. Maybe it's 10 minutes. The next day, it's five minutes. You know, nothing major, but you're seeing a pattern of somebody being late. Or maybe you see that somebody is exhausted. You know, they're falling asleep on the job. They're falling asleep at lineup. You know, maybe they're having issues at home, whether it's a divorce or somebody has got an illness or cancer, they've got child issues. I mean, you know, that's the thing is as officers, we have the work stuff, but we have all the normal at home stuff, just like everybody else out there. And so if we don't know our people, you know, we don't know what's going on in their lives. We not, we may not be able to see these signs, you know, but other examples are, let's say you go to a call or they're a traffic stop and you see that the officer is getting agitated very easily or they're getting upset easily, or maybe a certain officer is starting to get a couple complaints from citizens saying, Hey, you know what? I got stopped by officer so-and-so and they are extremely short and rude to me. And you know, that's not normal for this officer. And so instead of just thinking, I got to come down on them and hammer them. No, let's, let's talk to them. Let's truly care about them. Let's open up that conversation. I mean, I could go on and on with these warning signs, but you're, if you don't know your people, then you're not going to know when things are different. And that's the key to this whole thing is that you have to know your people. Yeah, you have to know your baseline. You have to know your baseline. And by the way, we can do that for ourselves too. You, you have to know what's normal for you and, and recognizing when you're not feeling um, yourself or when you're uh, – we also and we also have to recognize that, hey, when we have things going on in our personal life, uh, bringing that, having people uh, come around us and, and help us out. And we all know who those people are in your agency that you can go to and, and talk to. I think a lot of times in, in law enforcement, we tend to be islands unto ourselves, and we don't want to show weakness because that's like the, the unforgivable sin in law enforcement is to show weakness. But it's not a sign of weakness. It's, you know, everybody, if you've been married for any length of time, if you've been married for more than 48 hours, you probably have had marital conflict. <laughs> Uh, you know, children's child issues, uh, extended care issues, things like that. And we have to be able to get the, you know, seek out help when we want to, because we do put, and I'm very critical of agencies as, as you are as well, but, but some, you know, there are also times when we don't help ourselves either. And it may be conditioned in us, but there's times when we have to reach out to others to, to seek the help. You know, we don't, we don't make it easy for us as well. Oftentimes we don't, do anything about a problem until it becomes a crisis situation. I couldn't agree more. I mean, we're so good at helping others and giving advice to other people, yet we don't want to help ourselves. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I'm really looking forward to the conference next week, and you're going to be talking about these issues to a group of executives down in Alabama, aren't you? I am, and, and I'm excited about that because – this is a great opportunity to connect and to, I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm going to be hundred percent open, hundred percent transparent. Yeah. And I mean, I'm going to let them see the reality of what their officers are seeing on a daily basis, because, you know, I'm not special and I'm not unique And all the things that I talk about in my book. There's countless numbers of people out there who are experiencing the exact same feelings dealing with the same trauma and it's having the same negative effects on their lives. Mm. And I, that's going to be exciting to to watch. And so with all of the the <laughs> sort of beating up on police executives that we've done here, I will say that this is an example of where there are, in fact, people that are recognizing what we're talking about and taking steps and putting on conferences like, you know, the one that Mike and I are going to be attending next week. And kudos to them because this is a message that they need to hear. There are people out there trying to do a better job. There's just not enough of it. 
And I am with you. I really think that there's not enough of this kind of a conversation being had with people that are coming, that are in the academy or shortly after coming out of the academy. And I know that the conversations that you and I are having, I never had when I was a police officer, ever. Uh, did not have it as an FBI agent. It didn't exist until I created it at the end of my career, which is sad because much of the the toxicity of the job should have been explained, you know, much, much earlier on uh, because it creeps up on you. Um, alcoholism, drug addiction, these things kind of sneak up on you. Mental health issues sneak up on you. The trauma sneaks up on you. And nobody warned me about that. Were you ever warned about that when you came into the field? Absolutely not. I, I didn't have a single conversation about that. I mean, I, I remember we had a small block, you know, talking about the public and talking about mental disorders and things like that and, and doing welfare checks and 5150 evals, but not once did we talk about looking inward and talk about, hey, this job, it's going to mess you up. It's going to change you forever as a person. You're going to see things that you just cannot imagine. And it wasn't talked about that. You know, what's talked about is the excitement of the job. And, and like I said, learning how to shoot, learning how to drive, learning the law, learning the procedures. But the emphasis really should be on us, on ourselves, on our health, because it's only going to make us that much better at what we do. Yeah. And more importantly, uh, take you on beyond the law enforcement career, because it, it's sad that, but there are so many people that retire from law enforcement and really don't make it much longer after that. Uh, part of that is people just become so, their identity is wrapped up in this particular job. And maintaining that balance, I know that, and I'm saying this because I was very, very guilty of it. I had really no life balance while I was working in law enforcement. Uh, thankfully, after I retired, I found a lot of other things doing like things like what we're doing right now that helped me sort of branch out and recalibrate and refocus uh, and find another purpose. But a lot of people don't do that, and they're just so wrapped up in this job, and it doesn't end well for them once they leave. Have you seen that? Absolutely. A absolutely. And, you know, most people, what, what I've seen is that the officers that are out on injury or the ones that retire, they don't realize how messed up they are until they have that time where they're not operational anymore. And all they do is have time on their hands and they start realizing that their sole identity was the job. And they start looking back at all the things they had to see and endure. And they look at their marriage that was lost. And it's just, it's absolutely heartbreaking. And that's why we need to prevent that from happening. You know, once you're retired, you're talking about 20, 30 years of trauma that you now have to unpack and deal with mm -hmm. as opposed to just dealing with it as it happens. Absolutely. Absolutely. And now you talked about some of the endorsements and you talked about the, the people that, uh, like, for example, the introduction is written by Lieutenant Colonel David Grossman. How did you, okay, how did that come about? Because I've met Lieutenant Colonel Grossman here in Washington, D.C. I was actually speaking at a uh, conference for the Joint Terrorism, National Joint Terrorism Task Force, and Lieutenant Colonel Grossman was one of the speakers. And I thought, well, this is a dynamic guy. And, you know, he has a, a great story, and he's he's very well known in, in our world. Uh, so how did you meet him, and how did this uh, introduction that he did for you come about? So, so like you, I actually met him years and years ago back when I was a new officer and I, I met him at a, an event where he was speaking. So he didn't, he didn't remember who I was. I mean, literally there was hundreds of people there, but he spoke to us and I saw him again after that. I read his book, you know, on killing on combat. And honestly, I've always looked up to the man. I mean, he is in my opinion, one of the first people that really dedicated his life to our warriors, to our first responders, and talked about the trauma, the toll of the job, you know, on being involved in a fatal shooting. And so literally on a whim, months ago, we actually just reached out to him. And again, he didn't know who I was. He didn't know who Dr. Springer was. And we just said, look, you know, we would really appreciate it if you would be willing to just read our manuscript 
and give us an endorsement. That's all we wanted. We didn't. We weren't even thinking about a Ford. And so we gave it to him, and he loved it. I mean, he loved the book. And so then I said, you know what? Let's just ask him if he'll do the Ford. And he, without hesitation, I mean, almost immediately after I asked him, he said, I would be absolutely honored to write the Ford for your book. And, and I can't tell you, it's like it's like a dream come true. I mean, I still can't believe that it actually happened because I literally just – shot for the stars and i figured you know what i'm gonna go out on a limb here i'm gonna i'm gonna approach him i'm gonna ask him i'm just gonna speak from the heart and he was the most approachable humble down-to-earth man i mean literally willing to give us the shirt off his back to help help this project so my respect goes out to Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. He is a great man. Oh yeah he is uh and everything that you said about him being humble and, and approachable he couldn't have been more friendly if he tried when when I met him, um, and you know, it. You were saying that this book has already taken off and is now. I mean, it's only been out for two days, and but it's uh, already two, break two and a half days. Yeah, two and a half days, but it's already really climbing up the charts, isn't it? It is. It's actually the number one bestseller in several different categories on Amazon, and it's just. It's literally. I wake up each of these days and it's a new category that we're number one in. And so it's still the reality of it hasn't set in. It's almost like, is this really happening? And so, um, you know, this, this book could have not come out at a better time. You know, May is mental health awareness month, it is, but it's yeah. also the, it's also the month that we honor our fallen law enforcement officers across the country. And so, May is a very, very special month to me. And given our current climate today, given the fact that our first responders, our law enforcement members, and of course our military members are killing themselves at a much higher rate than dying in the line of duty. I mean, this book is needed now more than ever. And this book will save lives. You know, you just touched on something right there, because I think a lot of people, if you're in law enforcement, you're, I'm sure that you're aware of what Michael just said, and that is that law enforcement officers are dying at a higher rate than uh, than they are on the line of duty. If you're not in law enforcement, this may be news to you. Explain that a little bit. What's going on with suicide? Well, it's suicide, something that nobody wants to talk about. Nobody wants to acknowledge. And I think for many years, and it still is today, it's underreported. And, you know, people are ashamed about it. And departments, agencies, family members, they don't want that out there for the public to know that somebody killed themselves. And the fact is, this has been going on long before I became a police officer. And it's just now, I would say, probably in the last six years, um, especially due to a group called Blue Help, which has really helped shed light on this. And they've started tracking the numbers of suicides in our country. And I believe going back to 2016, we are well over 1,100 documented law enforcement suicides alone. And again, that's underreported. Yeah. I mean, I would say those numbers are at least two to three times underreported. So again, this has been going on. It just hasn't been talked about. And we're getting to the point now where I, and this good or bad, I'm seeing now where agencies are starting to put it out there. They're starting to acknowledge it. When an officer dies by suicide, of course, with the family's permission and all the privacy issues, in some cases, they're putting it on their social media. In some cases, it's being shown in the media and on the news. And the fact is, it needs to be because this is a reality. We need to stop hiding it and covering up pretending like it doesn't exist because it's real and it's killing our officers i mean way more than a lot of duty the only thing and this is an anomaly the only thing that outnumbers the suicides compared to line of duty deaths is covid if you take away the covid numbers for this year and last year year over year suicides outnumber the other line of duty deaths that is a fact mm. And it's, it's increased over over a period of time. It's not even with the efforts that people are putting towards mental health issues. It's it's increasing, isn't it? 
Well, here's the deal, and this is kind of what I talked about. Is it increasing or is the reporting getting better? And and it yeah. may be a combination of the two, to be honest with you, because I think we're seeing more numbers because it's coming out more and yeah. people are acknowledging it and they're recognizing it. And so I think that's making a difference. But I also think by doing that, we're actually going to be reducing the numbers. Wow. It's a, it's a tough situation and you see it a lot. And and I know in the military, the military is having rural issues with, with suicide and folks, I cannot emphasize this enough. We have to really, really uh, support our law enforcement because I have no doubt in my mind that uh, there's just this malaise in law enforcement with the, the job that's always been tough, but then how law enforcement has been treated. And, and I've seen that. I've experienced that in, in the last couple of years. And I'm retired. But when people find out what my background is, I, I get these looks and it's like, oh, are you some kind of a racist? Are you some kind of a, oh, you're white and you're a cop? And and I, it just has an effect on people. Like, you got to be kidding me. I've devoted my entire life to this country and to the community. And that's how you look at me because there's a, a couple of bad apples that are out there. Uh you know, but if, if you're listening to this and you're down and you're really having second thoughts about your career or you're, you just feel stuck, understand that I have been on planet Earth long enough to know that these things go through cycles. And, and actually, I think in a lot of ways, uh, the attitudes towards law enforcement is starting to circle back to becoming positive because of, you know, we, we saw how we treated law enforcement and the, the the spikes in the crime rates and now people are realizing oh no we really do need these people and they do help the community you are appreciated by many 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 people in the community and don't let the current climate bring you down uh, just stay the course do what you need to do stay healthy work on issues unpack those issues and you know get the help you need when you need it uh, I mean do you feel the same way Mike Absolutely. I could not agree more. I mean, you said it perfectly. Well, this is exciting. And talk about some of the other things that you're doing. Now, I know you just released the book, but if you can, just for our listeners as, as we wrap up, talk about some of the other projects that you have going on and the things. I mean, obviously, you're going down in, uh, to Alabama to speak, but you speak all over the country. And what other kinds of things are you doing? So there was a short documentary film that came out uh, almost three months ago now, and it was made by Mission 22. And Mission 22 is a nonprofit which helps our combat veterans. And it's called The Stigma of Help. People can actually find this uh, if they just Google either Stigma of Help, it's on YouTube, or if they go to Mission 22's YouTube site. And that film has been phenomenal. And the whole point is of the film is to break the stigma of asking for help, just like the title. And so um, in addition to that, there's actually, um, I this just got scheduled. This is brand new. I haven't talked about it, but there's a full length documentary that's in the works right now. It's called Residual. And it's about first responders and post-traumatic stress injury. And I'm gonna be actually doing an interview for that film. Um, actually, a couple days after I get back from Alabama, believe it or not. Mm. So um, working on that, and like you said, doing the speaking all over the place. I just spoke in Lake Tahoe in April uh, for the California Police Chiefs Association for all the colleges and universities. And I've got three more events lined up here in California, and we're just kind of waiting to see what else happens. So right now it's getting this book out, you know, doing the film and continuing with the speaking. Um, in addition to that, I also run a couple sites on social media, on both Facebook and Instagram. I would say the most important one is called First Responders First. Yeah. Again, First Responders First. And on that page, I also have a private group that I run. And I'm constantly sharing articles, uh, news stories, training opportunities, but everything and anything that deals with post-traumatic stress for any first responder um, any active military, any veteran. And so I really encourage people to check out those pages because they're extremely helpful, helpful. And that applies to anybody, you know, family members of such, or even just average citizens out there on the street. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And as far as the book is concerned, if the listeners want to get a copy of your book, how would they do that? So that is exclusively on Amazon. And like I said, it just got released two and a half days ago, and it's called Relentless Courage. 
Winning the Battle Against Frontline Trauma, and it's by Dr. Shauna Springer and myself. Uh, and of course, with that intro with Lieutenant Colonel David Grossman, and that is that is phenomenal. And Mike, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast. I know you're very, very, very busy these days, and coming in and taking the time to talk to us is just, uh, it's just priceless. So I really appreciate you doing that. Well, I appreciate your support as always, and I'm looking forward to meeting you next week. Yeah, we've not met yet, but we will be there uh, down in, in uh, Alabama at the FBI National Academy Associates uh, Alabama chapter and doing the presentation. Look forward to it, and um, I will see you there, Mike, but thank you so much for coming on on the show today. Sounds great. I'll see you soon. Okay, and folks, this episode is sponsored by uh, FHE Health, and according to SAMHSA, first responders are 30% more likely to develop behavioral health conditions like PTSD, like we just talked about. And FHE Health specializes in getting first responders better and cleared for duty. So find out more at FHEHealth.com. And uh, folks, as I'd like to say, I don't represent any group. Um, I don't represent anyone other than myself, and that's true with Mike as well. Uh, my only purpose in giving this information is to share with you what I've what I've done because it's helped me and maybe it'll help you too. And so if I've said anything or if Mike has said anything that doesn't apply to you or you don't agree with, then just discard it. But try to take any information that you can to help yourself because maybe you can use that information to help others as well. That's what we try to do in recovery. Uh, we help ourselves along the way. And with that, we try to impart the knowledge we, we've gained to others. So with that, please visit our Facebook page, which is Recovery is Possible, and our website, vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com, and let me know how I'm doing. Uh, or if there's a topic that you'd like to hear about, let us know, because, again, that's what we do in recovery. And please check out all of Mike's information and get a copy of this book. I know that it's going to mean a lot to you, and you can use it to help others. So, folks, with that, this is Mike Van Meter, Recovery is Possible. Look forward to seeing you all soon, and take care.